Good evening, everyone. We're going to uh, make a start. Welcome to uh, this public lecture. Uh, my name is Ben Voyer. I'm a consumer psychologist uh, working uh, in the Department of Social Psychology um, at the LSE. Welcome to the LSE. Um, I'll be chairing this session tonight. Uh, just a bit of housekeeping before we start. Uh, this event is being recorded. Uh, hopefully, we'll have a podcast that will be, that will be available online, um, subject to no technical difficulties. Um, the topic of the lecture is predatory thinking, and we have a hashtag for those of you who are on Twitter. So the hashtag is um, LSE Predatory. Um, so our speaker for the evening is uh, Dave Trott. Um, many who many would say that he's an advertising guru. Will, uh, he will tell us whether he thinks uh, of himself uh, this way. Um, for most of my students, advertising stands for two things. Mad Men, and indeed Dave started his career on Madison Avenue, um, and maybe more controversial brainwashing. But in fact, Dave is notorious for having embraced Coase Marketing, um, National Accident Helpline, anti-third world debt advertising are some of the things um, he can be proud of. His latest book talks about predatory thinking, um, and as a consumer psychologist and as an evolutionary psychologist, I see it as a very interesting move, because it's putting ourselves back as anthro-gatherers and thinking of the world out there, even the world of consumption, as something that has evolved uh, or as, hasn't much evolved since the time we were anthro-gatherers. So he will tell us um, how this affects decision-making, strategy for companies, and how we should um, behave according to these principles. So without further ado, um, I'll invite Dave to give his lecture. Thank you very much. Thanks. So I'm a creative director, so you're not expecting a marketing talk. This is an advertising talk as distinct to marketing. Advertising is the voice of marketing, but it isn't marketing. That's what's fucked up most of advertising at the moment. <laughs> creative departments think they are marketing departments. They're not. The creative department is an interesting thing. Everybody talks about creativity and currently you must have the word creative on the front of everything. So you have uh, creative footballers, you have creative cookery shows, you have creative TV presenters, creative businessmen. Uh, everything must be called creative. So, and everybody talks about creativity, nobody knows what the fuck it is. <laughs> I thought this is quite interesting. Everybody talks about it, nobody has a clue what it is, but everybody has to have it on the front of their name. And uh, so, <clears throat> ages back, I, was, I, I had opened an agency called GGT, and I was talking to my partner then, a guy called Mike Greenlees. He went to Warwick, and he did a, uh, a degree in pure math at Warwick. And I was saying to him, um, uh, well, I couldn't do math because it's numbers. I can't do numbers. And Mike said, no, pure math isn't numbers. Pure math is logic and reason and argument and experiment and discovery. He said, uh, applied math is numbers. And I said, well, what's the difference? And he said, well, pure math is you come up with a new thought, uh, a new argument, a new way of thinking. You don't know what it's for yet. Later on, someone will use that uh, in applied math for a practical purpose. I thought, what if that applies to creativity then? So you've got pure creativity which would be like art galleries, so paintings, sculptures, video installations, that kind of stuff. Then you, which, which would be for no real purpose, just for someone to experiment and to come up with something new, Impressionism, Cubism, Expressionism, Post-Expressionism. Then people like me would come along and we'd be, we'd, 
it would be practical creativity. We'd use that for a purpose. We'd use that for film, we'd use that for, for writing, for photography, for animation, for advertising, for editorial media. So you'd have a difference between... So what we do would be applied creativity. Now, if we're doing applied creativity, how do we look at that in advertising terms? Tonight's all going to be about advertising, by the way. We'll, we'll, we'll bleed a little bit into other stuff, but just so you know, it'll mainly be about advertising. Um, so, so how does creativity... Now, the man in advertising is Bill Burnback. He's the man who invented good advertising. If you've ever watched Mad Men on the telly, that was all the shit advertising that came before Bill Burnback. Bill Burnback invented great advertising. In my time, my art school was in New York, and uh, that's where um, you were either Ogilvy or Burnback. If you wanted to make money, you were Ogilvy. If you wanted to do great work, you were Burnback. So, um, in those days, we were all the evangelists, the, the guys who'd seen the light, were all Burnback. We wanted to change the world and we were going to do it by great advertising. What Burnback said was, it may well be that creativity is the last unfair advantage we're legally allowed to take over our competitors. Now that's so good, I'm going to say that again. It may well be that creativity is the last unfair advantage we're legally allowed to take over our competitors. So creativity is a legal unfair advantage in our terms. So we're kind of narrowing it down. We don't have to fluff around with the words anymore. So what would that look like? A it would look like having a problem we can't solve. How can we solve a problem we can't solve? Well, if you know anything about Edward de Bono, if any of you know anything about Edward de Bono, he's the guy who invented lateral thinking. He said there are many people calling themselves creative who are mere stylists. <coughs> so creativity isn't the so-called creative department. That's really not very creative, most of the people in there. They are stylists. Creativity is an adjective, not a noun. Creativity is how innovatively, how unexpectedly, how excitingly you do your job, whatever your job is. So if we look at that in our terms, in my terms, in Edward de Bono's terms, real creativity would be taking a problem you can't solve and getting upstream of it and changing it into a problem you can solve. Now what would that look like? Well, let's give you a simple example. Two explorers walking through the jungle and they hear a tiger roar and they hear the tiger's footsteps as the tiger's running towards them. And one explorer gets down and starts putting on running shoes and the other explorer says, you're crazy if you think you can outrun a tiger. And the first explorer says, I don't have to outrun the tiger, I just have to outrun you. <laughs> that would be predatory thinking, that would be creativity. I've taken a problem I can't solve, which is outrunning a tiger, and I've got upstream of that problem. The tiger doesn't have to eat two people. <coughs> Whilst the tiger's eating one person, I can be getting away. All I have to do is make sure the one person the tiger eats isn't me. That's predatory thinking, that's creativity, that's getting upstream of a problem and solving it into a problem. Now, in advertising terms, by the way, I'm, I'm a creative director, so it's okay to talk back in this, yeah? If you're quiet, I'll think you're bored. I'm used to creative people, so I'm used to a lot more noise. Um, so, if we're going to solve a 
move up. If we've got a problem we can't solve, and we're going to move upstream of that and change it into a problem we can solve, in advertising terms, what's the problem we can't solve? Okay, so the numbers are in the UK every year, 18.3 billion pounds is spent on all forms of advertising and marketing. 18.3 billion pounds is spent on all forms of advertising and marketing. Of that, 4% is remembered positively, 7% is remembered negatively, 89% isn't noticed or remembered. What do we think the problem might be? It's not the 7% that is remembered negatively, at least that works. Let's go compare. We might think it's shit, but we remember it. It's the 89% that you don't even remember. It's not the 7% that gets on your radar and you say, I hate that shit. At least it works. There's a, there's a terrible belief amongst people in advertising and marketing that for advertising to work, you have to like it. You don't have to like it. It has to be in your consciousness. It has to be salient. It has to be top of mind. When you come to a purchasing decision, you don't have to like it. It's nice if you like it, but you don't have to like it. So, 4% remember positively, 7% remember negatively, 89% not noticed or remembered. I think we know what the problem is. 90% of advertising is invisible. It's wallpaper. If you think I'm wrong, if you think that's too extreme, <coughs> they, we apparently are exposed to 1,000 advertising messages a day, each of us. 1,000 advertising between the laptop, between the radio when you wake up in the morning, the TV in the evening, coming in on the tube, the cross-track posters, riding the bus, the little posters there in the newspaper, the free giveaway newspapers you're reading. A thousand advertising messages a day. Stick your hand up if you remember one from yesterday. Not one you worked on, but as a consumer. Stick your hand up if you remember one from yesterday. This is prompted. That's around about, out of about 500 people, that looks like about 10. 15? Call it 15. Yeah? So 500 people, that's 500,000 messages. We remember 15. That's about the scale of the problem. You begin to get the idea of the problem. It's not, did you do it well? It's, did anybody fucking notice? <laughs> Everything, it's wallpaper, that advertising out there. The most advertising is garbage. It's invisible garbage. 90% of it. Predatory thinking is making sure you're not part of the 90% that's invisible garbage. You reposition that 90% so that you're in the 10%. <coughs> A great book to read is Positioning by Reese and Trout, one of the best advertising books on this. You reposition the competition. Now, behavioural economics is, really, is, is quite useful in this, theoretically. Nothing's useful unless you can turn it into practice. But in theory, behavioural economics is described as turning human, un turning human understanding to business advantage. Turning human understanding to business advantage. Once you've got through a 200-page book that could be summarised in six pages, it's turning human understanding into business advantage. So our true area of study is humans. Let's have a little look. If we're wasting... 18.3 billion spent every year, 4% remembered positively, 7% remembered negatively, 89% not noticed or remembered. That's roughly 17 billion quid pissed away by so-called experts. Yeah? Well, so, they don't understand the media. 
If they don't understand the media, let's have a look at the media. We're going old school with this. I don't, I don't know how to do PowerPoint, so we're doing this creatively. Ah, uh, right. Here's the consumer. Now we know media is always changing. We start off with press as a way to get to the consumer. Then we move into posters. Then we moved into cinema. Then we moved into TV. Always changing like this. Then we moved into what did we move into after TV? Digital. Then we moved into social media. Then we moved in. Then next year we'll move into the new thing that's going to kill all other media. <laughs> yeah. Do you notice anything there that isn't changing? That's our media. These are just channels to get to the media. You could, we used to get to them with cave painting, with frescoes, with oil painting, with black and white photography, with silent movies, with talkies. The me what's called the media will always change. But nothing goes viral just because you stick it on YouTube. Nothing goes viral just because you stick it on Twitter. It goes viral because people pick it up and people press a button which makes it go viral. That's the study of where it goes viral. If you can, if you can make people, you know, virus is something that people pass to other people. If you can make people pick it up, it'll go viral. If you take, you know, the current, it's now called viral, viral media. It never used to be called viral, it used to be called word of mouth. We used to create word of mouth before this. And everybody thinks viral is the new thing and it only exists because of social media. Absolute bollocks. Do you all know the song Green Sleeves? Yeah, Green Sleeves? Henry VIII wrote that. That's 1540. That's 400 years before there was any electricity. How come you know it? That's around about the time printing was invented. How come you know it? You know it because it got passed from person to person to person to person. That's how viral works. That's our area of study. That's our media. I want to trigger 55 million little units of that to learn how to get free media. In creative terms, that's what we're studying. Not these. This is fashion. This is just whatever's new this week. Skirts are long, no skirts are short. So we'll all make our skirts short. No, they're long again, we'll all make our skirts long again. That's just a load of sheep copying a load of other sheep. And that's why 90% of it doesn't work. 90% are the people that think this is the media. If you can trigger this, this is the media. This is where it gets exciting. When the sun picks it up and runs it on its front page. When a comedian picks it up and repeats it on the TV. When people begin sending it up and doing jokes about it on YouTube. That's when it goes viral, when people pick it up, when you get it into the language and people use it, when you hear school kids saying it in the street, when politicians use it in their speeches. That's what we're trying to trigger. Yeah? Thank you. That's our media. So, if we accept that that's our media, how does our media work? Well, it works on what Bill Birnbach called simple, timeless human truths. That's our area of study. Simple, timeless human truths. If you can find that, you don't need 
all families, whatever country you're in, whatever religion you're from, you love your children. That's a simple, timeless human truth. If we study simple, timeless human truths, we can study people. That's our media. So, and by the way, this will be very, very simple. This will be too simple for most of you that want degrees. Because you love it to be complicated. The, because that's, that's what degrees are all about, taking simple things and complicating them. The, the bad news is, I have to tell you in advertising terms, what we, need to, what we do, what works, is taking complicated things and making them simple. Einstein said, if you can't explain it to an 11-year-old, you haven't really understood it. Stupid people think complicated things are clever. Really good people understand you go beyond complicated to get to simple. Complicated is the halfway. You don't stop at complicated, you go beyond there because it's not communicable. I've always found, when I'm looking at briefs, the quality of the brief is inversely proportional to the length of the words used. If people have done a really bad brief and they're embarrassed about the thinking, they'll dress it up with long words and try and disguise it with long words. If people love their thinking and it's outrageous, they'll keep it as simple as possible because they want you to get it. So I always know, as soon as I see a brief, if it's full of long words, I know it's crap. And I know we'll send this back. This is when, we, when we reduce this to simple words, it'll reveal how crap the thinking is. That's someone who learned their thinking right in a thesis. Take something really boring and wrap it up and disguise it for the lecturer. <coughs> the, so, as I say, this is going to be simple. Because simplicity works. This is going to be about our area of study, the human mind, our media, the human mind, and we need to keep it simple so it's powerful. How does the human mind work? Okay, simple, timeless human truth. From the day you're born till the day you die, all of your communications will consist of three elements. You have impact, you've got to have communication, and you've got to have persuasion. If you don't agree with any of this, shout out and we can discuss it. You've got to have him, and it has to go that way, like a funnel. You've got to have impact, because without impact, nothing happens. If no one knows you want something, nothing happens. In America, they say the squeaky wheel gets the oil. If no one knows you want something, nothing happens. So without impact, nothing happens. <coughs> Communication, if people know you want something but they don't know what you want, they can't understand what you're saying, nothing happens. <coughs> if they know what you want, they understand what you're saying but they don't see any reason they should do it, nothing happens. That's the day you're born till the day you die. When a baby is born, that's the basic purpose of human interaction. When a baby is born, it cries. Why does it cry? It cries to get its mum's attention because it wants something. It doesn't even know language yet, but it cries. The mum looks at it and sees what colour it's gone. Has it gone green? Has it gone blue? Has it gone red? She'll know. The mum will then know, does it need burping? Does it need feeding? Does it need this nappy changed? And the mum, because she loves the baby and wants it to feel good, is persuaded to do something about it. Impact, communication, persuasion. That's how it works. The, every, the most simple, basic communication. I'll sit at home watching TV with the wife and I want a cup of tea. I want her to make me a cup of tea. <laughs> I can't sit there sending out thought waves. 
hoping she gets the message, huh? <laughs> Might be, but let's have let's have a look at let's have a look at the communication. Let's have a look at. So supposing I get on her radar, I say, Kath, Kath, and I say it loud enough. She says yes. <laughs> I can't then say to her, two fish in a bucket, because it has no meaning. <laughs> it's like the adverts you see where you don't know what they're talking about. Be a bit more dog. What the fuck is that about? <laughs> Right? So, this is people, you think this is basic, people in advertising don't know this stuff. That's why 90% of it doesn't work. They, they, they think that's the job. They think the job stops there. So we all know be a bit more dog, we've all seen it, we haven't got a fucking clue what it's about, who it's for. But I'll say to Kath, make us a cup of tea. Okay, I'm on the radar. I've successfully communicated. She says, why? And now I've got to think of closing the sale. So I say, if you make us a cup of tea, I'll put the garbage out. <laughs> now, if she doesn't want to put the garbage out and she thinks that's a good deal, she'll make me a cup of tea. That's how life works. That's how good advertising works. You're on my radar. It's a three-stage process. You're on my radar. I know what you want and I know why I should do it. Now, be a bit more dog. You're on my radar. I don't know what the fuck you're talking about and I certainly don't know why I should do it. Is it dog food? I don't know. So, so, what we do know though, here's what we do know, from 18.3 billion pounds spent, 89% is invisible, what we do know is 89% doesn't work here. What we do know is 89% doesn't even get past this part, yeah? 89% fails there. It doesn't even get noticed or remembered. And what do we spend all our time talking about? This part. We do groups in Slough with 12 housewives. We have meetings with the client and the marketing department. The planner comes in and he'll write a new brief. We'll look at the ads, we'll do more briefs, we'll refine the ads, we'll do the logo a little bit bigger, a little bit smaller. We'll spend all of our time talking about this had no time talking about that. The most important sentence on a brief is never ever written on a brief. All the time I've been in this business, I've never ever seen it written on a brief because it's never been written on a brief. And that sentence is, people must notice this advertising. Everybody assumes because they do an ad, it will be noticed. And that's the 89% that isn't noticed or remembered. Because you assume straight away your advertising will be noticed just by virtue of you having done it. And that's why that, you might as well keep your money in your trousers. Now, if we know that's what we need to address, impact, that's 90% of the job. Sure, it's not the whole job, but even we'd be a bit more dog, we're talking about it. Be handy if they told us what it was, but at least we, at least that, so if we know 90% of it isn't noticed or remembered, yeah? Ninety percent of it isn't noticed or remembered. How do we get it noticed or remembered? If that ought to be our first area of study, especially in the creative department, see, what will happen is the creative department, how, how this works now, the art director and copywriter, this is definitely the art director's area. 
Copywriter, this is the copywriter's area, both these two. Impact is definitely the art director's area. Impact and communication is copywriter and art director. Communication and persuasion is planner, and pure persuasion is account man and client, marketing. Yeah? yeah? So pure marketing is persuasion. Impact is, is really the copywriter and the art director, but absolutely certainly the art director. You need to know this if you're running an agency. You need to know whose arse gets kicked if any of this isn't working. <laughs> so like, be a bit more dog, I wouldn't be kicking the art director's ass. I'd be kicking the planners and the account man's ass. In fact, I'd probably be firing them and getting a new planner and a new account man. The, the creatives have done their job. They've got it on the radar but the other people haven't done this. Yeah? So, we need to know how this bit works. Impact, yes? 90% of it fails at impact. We need to know, do you agree with this? I won't move on until I know you agree. <laughs> okay? How does impact work? Right. I can give you the punter's version and I can give you the university version. I was doing a lecture, by the way, in, um, in Berlin about a year or so back to all these Berlin business leaders, German business leaders. And they're all taking notes really carefully in this area everything I said. And at the end of it, they come up to me and they said, um, uh, we found it very interesting, everything you said was great, but you've used some market segmentations for consumers that we don't quite understand. For instance, what is punters? <laughs> So, you might have to translate as you go. The, um, what I'm going to do, I'm going to show you uh, a commercial break, but I'm going to show you it in abstract. If I show you an actual commercial break, you'll get distracted by what's, what, what's in it, what the pictures are and that. But if I show you in abstract, you can get the principle. First I'll show you the punter's version, then I'll tell you the university version of why it works. So this is, this is how punters see a commercial break. You're watching, a, you're watching a TV, uh, end of part one, the adverts start. First advert? Second advert? <laughs> Third advert? <laughs> Fourth advert? Fifth advert? Sixth advert? Seventh advert? Eighth advert? Breaks over. And you go back, part two starts, you watch your commercial, you watch your programme, <coughs> you go to bed, you sleep, next day you get up, you go to the supermarket. Which one of those commercials do we think is more likely to have survived the erosion of all of that process and still be in your mind? It's not a fucking hard work, is it? <laughs> that's how it is in the real world. Not just in adverts, by the way, that's how it is in life. It's called gestalt. Now, that's how the mind works. If we're doing a study of the mind, the basic software of the mind is gestalt. What it is, is the mind's a pattern-making machine. If you know anything about Freud, you know that we're born in a state of id and we move into a state of ego. Now, ego not meaning big-headed, ego meaning I am. Ego meaning separating ourselves off from the world. Watch your children. It's fascinating, the first six months of their lives. You can, you can see them do that. When they're born, they don't know that there's a them separate to this. Everything is everything. There's just a shed load of stimulus and they don't even know that there's them responding to the stimulus. Everything is everything. Gradually, they learn to sort the atoms out into concepts. So you've got the concept 
of a bottle or the concept of a jumper or the concept of a table. They're gradually learning to sort, can't they do this by sticking things in their mouth, everything in their mouth. Their fingers, their crib, the blanket, even their toes. What they gradually learn is when they bite something, if it hurts, it's them. If it doesn't hurt, <laughs> it's not them. That's how the mind works. So fast you can't even spot it. It's a pattern-making machine. It's gestalt. If I do that, how many fingers did I hold up? How many digits did I hold up? You didn't have time to count one, two, three, four, five, six. What you did is you, he held all his digits up on two hands, two fives is ten. Like that. That's how the mind works. You would know, if I'm looking at this room now, I can see a lot of you in blue shirts, a lot of you in white shirts. My mind's grouping it. I don't actually see a lot of women, I can see a lot of men, different ethnic groups. My mind's, I'm not seeing, I'm not seeing four or five hundred individuals. I'm seeing groups. That's what our minds do. Selective perception. If I go home tonight and I say to the wife, Kath, why don't we buy a Volkswagen Golf? And she says, yeah, that's great, let's buy a Volkswagen Golf. And tomorrow morning I come in on the train, I get out, I walk to work, a quarter of all the cars on the road are Volkswagen Golfs. How did that happen? Why weren't they there yesterday? They were, but I wasn't looking for them. I wasn't separating out the concept Volkswagen Golf from the overall concept cars. Yeah? It was just a mass of cars. So, if we know the mind works on groupings, gestalt, the mind is a pattern-making machine, what happens is, and this is why the mind is our study and really our medium, here's the human mind, here's Two, four, six, eight, eleven, twelve, fourteen, sixteen, eighteen, nineteen. Nineteen commercials in the brain. Yeah? I had another commercial. What share of mind have I got? There were nineteen, I've added another one, making it twenty. Brilliant, five percent. Now <coughs> What we know about Gestalt, we know if I had another commercial like that, I haven't got 5% of the mind because we know what the brain does is grouping. And what the brain will then do, I'll have a lot of commercials like that and I'll have a commercial like that. Now what share of mind have I got? You see, by doing no more than being different, I've, by a factor of 10, I'm on the radar now. Now I've got impact. Now I've repositioned everybody else. Now, and that works in a pitch, that works anywhere. If you've got to get put a short list together, what you're going to do is you're going to say, well, let's take the best two or three of these and that unless you absolutely can't stand that, in which case you'll row that out straight away. Well, that's okay, we would have got rowed out. But what you won't be doing is sitting there saying, which of these two shall we pick? Or this one shall we pick? Or this one shall we pick? What you'll do is you'll pick the best three or four of those and you'll say, we must have a look at the alternative. And that will get you right down to the last two. You may not win, but it will get you to the last two, which will increase your chances of winning. Just by being, that's a job interview, that's 
pulling, I was going to say pulling birds in a pub, that's pulling people in a pub, <laughs> that blokes or birds. By being different, you will separate yourself off from the competition, you will, you will get yourself down to the shortlist, you will stand a lot more chance of being successful because you will be on the radar. Yeah? Don't have to agree with it, just so I know you've got it. Well, I can move on. See, my attitude to all of this is you don't have to agree with everything I said. This is like a meal. Eat what you want, leave what you don't. Yeah? If, but if there's anything here that's useful, take it away. But you may not agree with it, in which case don't take it away. That's all right. The object is you walk out of here knowing more than you knew when you walk in. You don't have to agree with it. But that little bit I've just showed you there... I did that 25 years ago in Monte Carlo to about 3,000 advertising people and I still get people coming up to me now saying that was the best thing I've ever heard about advertising. And these are guys that own their own agencies, own their own media companies, really senior people. Because really senior people want it simple. Junior people want it complicated because it, because it helps them prove, they think, it helps them prove they've got a place in the business and they know what they're talking about. So junior people love to learn the jargon and love to prove that they know what they're talking about by learning the jargon. Senior people go beyond that. Senior people want it simple because that's powerful. Yeah? But junior people, you can't help it, you'll be, you'll be repeating the jargon to prove your credibility. That's what junior people do. So... One last thing in that particular part to talk about there is about going viral. <coughs> that gets us on the radar. Now something else happens. If, if you study demographics, you know about um, ABC1C2DE, the usual old Nielsen ratings. That's kind of useful, but it's a quarter of the story. The much more useful thing is psychographics. And the most useful part of psychographics is this. Opinion formers and opinion followers. Now, what happens is most people are opinion followers. Most people don't want to stand out most people wouldn't want to be up here talking. Most people would be embarrassed. Most people wouldn't want to take the risk of looking stupid. Some people do, some people don't mind. Now, if you go in any pub, if you've worked on any beer accounts, when you work on beer accounts, you go in any pub, you'll see groups of half a dozen blokes. And they're usually one bloke's leading it. One bloke's telling the jokes, one bloke's leading the conversation, whether they talk about football, whether they talk about the war, whether they talk about birds. One bloke will be leading the conversation. The rest of them will quite happily chip in, each one, but one bloke will be leading it. You go into Starbucks, you'll see three or four women round the table. One woman will be doing most of the talking, and the other three or four will be quite happy to chip in a little bit here and there, according to what she says. But they'll be the opinion followers. She's the opinion former. Now, if we can trigger these, we can trigger these. Why would we care about that? Well, it's a function of budget. With 18.3 billion, you probably don't have much of a budget. You certainly don't have anything like that. I was talking to some, a, fi uh, a financial forum, and I looked up some numbers beforehand, and um, 
that I had a, 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 re, a small account would be 5 million quid. Medium sized account would be 10 million quid. When you get to 15 million quid, you're getting the big account. Seriously big account. Direct line. You've all seen the direct line ads on TV. How much do you think direct line spends? Huh? How do you know that? <laughs> no, they spend 83 million. So that they spend 10% of the financial sector, which itself is 10% of the overall advertising sector. Now, with 83 million, when you've got 10%, with 83 million quid, you can pretty much walk around to every individual person and shake them by the hand and tell them what your story is <laughs> for 83 million quid. But supposing you've only got 8 million quid, what are you going to do? You'll get buried by those guys who've got 83 million. Unless you know how to trigger these guys who will each trigger 10 of these, in which case you can make your 8 million worth 80 million. You take something like the meerkats, compare the market. When those guys initially did that, that meerkats thing, they must, have, they must have, by a factor of six, eight, ten, who knows, they must have maximised their ad budget. By word of mouth. By triggering the media, which was people talking about it. By what you nowadays call viral. But it's actually free media. You're creating free media. So, now the really interesting thing is these opinion formers, they need fresh stuff to talk about. They need, they're not interested in being like everybody else, like the followers. They need new stuff, original stuff, fresh stuff, unusual stuff, stuff to talk about. Which coincidentally is exactly that. This is the opinion formers, this is the opinion follower. This costs 83 million to get to, this costs 8 million. Because if you do that, you get that. Now why should you care about this? Because one day you're going to have to sell your work to a client. And the client doesn't want to buy anything that looks different. The client wants to buy something that looks exactly like what everybody else in his area is doing because that's safety. The client wants to be one of the exes because that's where the safety is. Rory Sutherland said, really good thing Rory said, he said, creative people have a fear of the obvious and they must sell their work to people who have a love of the obvious. <laughs> Clients love the obvious because there's no risk in that. I won't stand out. Clients are all opinion followers. I won't stand, they're not entrepreneurial. Junior clients especially. Senior clients are more entrepreneurial. Senior clients are more willing to do the X amongst the zeros. Junior clients will only want to do the zeros because they don't want to stand out. They don't want to look stupid. They don't want to take a risk on it going wrong. And if they do the same as everybody else and use all the long words, they won't stand out. They won't look stupid. They're all opinion followers at that stage. They're all frightened. Fired, frightened of getting fired. It's not until they get some confidence they become more senior, they become more entrepreneurial, they're less frightened, they're more willing to stand out, they change into an opinion former, and then they want to become the X amongst the zeros. Now, um, I'll give you, this is all predatory thinking, this is how we reposition that 90%, this is how we treat them as the wallpaper that we're going to hang a picture on the front of. The, um, I'll give you some... Uh, some examples of great, I think, great predatory thinking in advertising and great creativity that is nothing to do with the creative department. Because most people in, in, in planning, in media, in account handling uh, get let off the hook and they don't think they have to be creative. So they end up doing their job by the numbers. 
and that's really boring and that's part of the 90% that all goes wrong. Give you an example, the um, guys at um, Abbott, Abbott Mead were re-pitching on Sainsbury's and um, Sainsbury's fair sized account, big account and they were re-pitching on it and that's quite depressing, re-pitching and they were re-pitching against M&C Sarches, some good agencies and they were sitting down and they were talking with all the, all the planners, they're sitting there talking and the creatives and the account men and they're saying, well what do we do? The task they had to do was deliver three billion pounds of new revenue in two years. That's not three billion pounds of revenue, that's three billion pounds of new revenue in two years. That's a big ask. And, but if you want the business, that's what, you, that's what you've got to do. And they're all sitting down, they're depressed, they don't know what they're going to do. And they're all saying, well what do we do about the brand? How do we reinvigorate the brand? How do we change the brand? How do we attract three billion pound of new customers? How, what do we do about the brand? Because stupid people knee jerk straight into brand. The answer's brand, now what's the question? They never think beyond that. But they had a young planner there, she, um, she hadn't been doing it long, and so she was still thinking freshly. And she said, see the real thing is, don't look at this as an advertising problem, look at it as a business problem. And she said, um, hang on, she said, before you get anywhere near brand, I've just been looking at the numbers. She said, we get 14 million store visits a week. Now, if you multiply 14 million by 100, that's the number of weeks in two years, and you divide that into 3 billion, that comes out of £1.85. If we could get every customer to spend another £1.85, we don't need a single new customer. How brilliant is that? Suddenly, it, that's getting upstream of the problem, reframing it, so you, you solve that problem. You don't need a single new customer, and straight out of that came that campaign, try something different. Yeah, with Jamie Oliver? Yeah. Straight out of that young planner, saying all we need is now. Some people won't spend a penny, some people will spend a tenner. But all you need to do is average £1.85 per customer. Brilliant. The, um, I'll give you another for instance. We were pitching, when I was a junior at BMP, we were pitching for fire prevention campaign. COI. Uh, uh, we're doing a fire prevention campaign. And... Um, the big thing then in fire prevention was chip pan fires. Uh, women used to um, put uh, uh, the fat or the oil in the saucepan, put it on the stove, put the gas on, then while it heated up they'd go away, do something else, forget about that, that would catch light, come into the kitchen, see it's light, throw some water on it, that would all superheat and explode over the kitchen. Kitchen would burn down, they'd have to call out the fire brigade, so they, want, they were doing another fire prevention campaign and such is the level of creativity in most ad agencies that all they ever did was campaigns telling you how bad it is to have a fire. Like we didn't know and if you hadn't told us, if only I'd known it was bad to have a fire I wouldn't have had one. <laughs> That's how stupid they think people are. So every year you do another ad showing you how stupid, how bad it is to have a fire and then another a new creative ad, this time we'll use animation to show you how bad it is to have a fire. Next year we'll use dead people to show you how bad it is to have a fire. We'll use skeletons to show you how bad it is. Nothing changed. Nothing changed. And this planner and this account man came to me and they said, um, we've had a great thought. We thought how you get upstream of the problem here. The problem you can't solve is, is fire. How do we get upstream of that problem? And here's the question. How will they know if we put fires down or not? How will they measure it? 
Now that's a great question. That reframes everything. How do you think they would measure it if they put fires down or not? How would you measure it? Common sense question, it's not difficult. <coughs> Call outs. 100%. Call outs. When you say that, immediately, my job now is not to stop people having fires, my job is to stop the fire brigade getting called out. Now we can reframe the whole thing, so what I'll do in the ads, I'll tell you how to put out a fire when you have it. Instead of telling you not to have it, so I'll tell you, when you see the fire, what you do is you get a tea cloth, you run it under the tap, you turn the gas off, wring the tea cloth out, put it over the fire to starve it of oxygen and walk away. Leave it there until it's all cooled down. And I'll do that in such a terrifying way that you'll never want to have a fire, of course. I'll make it seem really scary, but you'll know how to put the fire out. When we did that, call-outs went down by 40% and I won a DNAD pencil from it. It wasn't my creativity, I just did the ads. The real creativity was the account man and the planner. That's when I say people are putting creativity in their job. That account man and planner, on the Sainsbury's pitch, that planner. Now, the great thing about predatory thinking stroke creativity is when you spot it in other places. I, 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 like, I like people to, um, all my guys to look for it in places other than just advertising. You get your creative muscles working when you spot it in other jobs. You can spot it in business, you can spot it in war, you can spot it in sport, you can spot it... And the really thing that will get your creative muscle working is to spot that kind of creative predatory thinking, or another word is street smarts. I come from the poor part of London. My art school was in New York. London and New York are great places to learn street smarts. That's creativity, that's outthinking other people, that's predatory thinking. Let me give you an example of what I mean in other areas. I'll give you a few examples in areas other than advertising. So you can see where you should be looking in other areas. Um, Don Revy, you won't know Don Revy, you're too young, but Don Revy was manager of Leeds, Leeds Football Club. And um, all, all football managers make the players study the opposing team in the week before the game. So you know what the opposing team's good at, what they're most likely to do. You make each player study the player they're playing against in the week before the game, yeah? Don Revy, nobody knew at the time, Don Revy had built up a dossier on every referee and he had his players study the referee in the week before the game. <laughs> now why did he do that? Well, when you're on the pitch, you normally get 50... Most things happen too fast for the referee. He's got to make up his mind really fast who to give this decision to. So you normally get 50% of the decisions go your way. And these decisions could be a penalty, they could be someone getting sent off, they could be a free kick, they could result in goals. The, but, meanwhile, if I've been studying the referee, Don Revy's team's been studying the referee, in the tunnel, before you go onto the pitch, his team are chatting to the referee and saying, how was your holiday? And how were the kids? The little one, they know his kids' names, they know where he went on holiday, they know what his hobbies are. Now he's out on the pitch and he's got to make a decision really fast. Who went into that tackle? Was it that snotty bastard who wouldn't talk to me in the tunnel or was it these really nice guys from Leeds? <laughs> In the year Leeds won the league, they got 80% of the decisions go their way. <laughs> That's really creative predatory thinking. On a smaller level, uh, my wife's from Singapore and my mother-in-law was over here uh, and they wanted to go and see Oxford. So uh, she likes these old 
quaint old English towns, you know, the Chinese, and she wanted to see. So I took her to Oxford, and while they're looking around at these quaint old, and Oxford's a, a university town, very competitive people go to Oxford, and it's all about the colleges there, and because they're students, they drink a lot, drink, you know, the students do. And while they, while they were looking at all the spires and everything in Oxford, I was looking around, and in the middle of town, there's three off licenses. And one of these off-licenses is doing loads more business than the other two. And I'm thinking, why is that? And why not? It's got a queue outside it. And I'm looking and I see this one off-license that's doing so much business, it's got a blackboard out in front of it. And on that blackboard is the names of every college, and every time you buy a crate of beer, they put an X up next to your college. <laughs> now, if you're a competitive student buying a crate of beer, where are you going to buy your crate of beer? I thought that was really, really clever. The, um, one of the guys that works at my office, he came in with something he thought was really creative. He lives in Kent, little tiny village in Kent, and there's one sweet shop in the middle of the village. And the little kids would go in there and buy their wrappers, and then they'd leave junk all over the village green. They'd leave sweet wrappers, empty soda pop bottles, all kinds of things all over the... And the woman who ran the sweet shop was getting terrible earache from all the local people about letting these kids find junk everywhere. And they put up uh, trash bins and the kids just wouldn't use them. They're kids, they couldn't be bothered. And she tried everything. And at the end, the one thing she, tried, she did that changed it all around, you know, she, she didn't threaten anybody. This is behavioural economics now, this is choice architecture. She didn't threaten anybody. All she did is when the kids bought any sweets or soft drinks, she wrote their name on the label. Never had to pick up another piece of litter. <laughs> That's taking a problem you can't solve and moving upstream, changing it into a problem you can solve. Um, in the third world, there's a couple of great ideas. A lot of, uh, a lot of kids die in the third world from infant mortality. Uh, they have a lot of these villages. The kids would live if they had incubators. And they, were, they, they, they used to send the incubators over there to these, uh, to these villages, but the incubators break. So what do you do? Well, you look at the problem, and the problem isn't that they haven't got incubators, the problem is they haven't got get upstream. The problem isn't the incubators, the problem isn't they haven't got anyone who can fix an incubator. That reframes the problem. The problem is, how do you fix, now is reframed as, how do you fix an incubator? So now you look in the third world and you see, well, what can they fix? And every little village has got a four-wheel drive Toyota truck that somehow is kept going. So now your start point is a little place in Oxford that designed and built them and won awards for it. Incubators built from Toyota truck parts. Two little headlights to keep the baby warm, a fan from the front of the Toyota truck, 12-volt direct current battery, reversing warnings... And so now, when it breaks, you just go down to the guy who keeps the truck going and he can fix the incubator. And they're out there saving lives now. Because you've got upstream and changed the problem. There's another third world thing. They reckon there's a billion people in the third world who can't do, skilled people, who can't do their job because their eyesight's failed. So what's the problem? What should you do? You send them glasses, right? Well, that's a knee-jerk reaction. You send them glasses. How are you going to know what glasses to send them? So the problem isn't sending them glasses, you get upstream, the problem isn't glasses, the problem is knowing what glasses to send them. Well, you look at it, there's roughly in the third world an optician per million people 
In our world, there's an optician per 40,000 people. And op- so the problem is opticians. They haven't got opticians. So now the problem is, how do you solve the fact that they need glasses, but they haven't got opticians? Well, again, you can look this up on... Uh, uh, the, the YouTube has the, uh, the, the, the videos on it. You can look it up on the internet. What they worked out in this uh, company in Oxford is if the problem is opticians, why don't we fit the optician on the glasses? Why don't we make everybody their own opticians? And they built the glasses so they have two sheets of acetate and a reservoir of clear oil on the side. And you put the glasses on and you add or subtract the oil, changing the frame until you can see exactly what you want, threading a needle or whatever you need to do. And they found these are 95% accurate people can work their own glasses out and the World Bank is funding 300,000 pairs of these now to go there by moving upstream and solving a problem you can't solve there's no opticians into a problem you can solve let's make people their own opticians I'll just give you a couple more um, do you want a couple more or not? Yes, yeah. yeah? Okay. Um, if you haven't read the Steve Jobs book the absolute best book, the Isaacson book best book I've read in two decades on advertising or marketing or creativity is the Steve Jobs book. There's so many great ideas in there. The thick, fat Isaacson book. The, uh, the, um, uh, he, he, he invented this, um, uh, he had this uh, iPod and it was the coolest, this will seem obvious to you guys now, but at the time I remember this happening and at the time it was wow, nobody saw this coming. He invented this iPod, and the iPod was great. It was cool, and it was different, and it, was, it looked unusual. And all the cool people would have the iPod. And for Steve Jobs, that was great, the cool people have got it. But the problem is, they'll have it and they'll put it in their pocket. How are you going to know the cool people have got an iPod? Steve Jobs didn't look at the iPod. It's obvious to you now, but he changed the one thing nobody else even thought of. He, he gave them white headphone leads. Nowadays it's obvious, but in all the history of all of that, nobody had ever looked at the headphone leads. And what Steve Jobs said is, what's everybody else doing? All those zeros. I'm going to be an X. And, and you could see without even looking at the iPod, you knew if they had one, because they had white headphone leads. Everybody else had black headphone leads. Kind of there was a... Steve Jobs' hero was a guy called Akio Morita, who was the founder of Sony. And what Akio Morita did is he was the inventor, he took the transistor, which was invented in the States, but Akio Morita took it and he invented this smallest pocket radio, first transistor radio. And he wanted people to sell this, his salesman to sell the pocket radio. But he wasn't happy that you just look at it and on its own, it's a small radio. He wanted a, a, a snappier way to demonstrate it. So he wanted it demonstrated as a shirt pocket radio. A radio you can fit in your shirt pocket, that's amazing. The problem was, it actually didn't quite fit in the shirt pocket. <laughs> so he had all of his salesmen made shirts with oversized pockets. <laughs> so they would just go and shop and say, look, it fits in your pocket. And no one would ever ask it, you know. <laughs> no one ever asked to check it. That was, that was the um, final thing I'll give you. I mean, I could, I could give you hundreds of these, but I'll just give you one more before we, uh, before we get ready. Yep. So... Uh, the Michelin Guide. Do you all know the Michelin Guide? How you judge restaurants? Do you know how that started, the Michelin Guide? Michelin is a tyre company. And what they needed 
in those days, way, way back, was how do we get people to buy more tyres? Well, you'll only buy more tyres if you wear out the tyres you've got. So why don't we give people books of places to go at the weekend? Places to go, things to see. So they gave out Michelin guides of parks, monuments, exciting things, and being French, restaurants for people to go and see. The Michelin guide. And what happened was, people would use these, because they were giving them away, people were taking them and not treating them seriously. So, what they did is they started to sell them and they put the cost of them up and they made them really expensive. So now people would hang on to them and wouldn't give them away. And gradually they dropped out everything except the restaurant part and the people that would own restaurants would now put the reviews in their window and restaurant critics would now use the Michelin guide and, and the three stars, the, you would get one star if it was worth stopping for, two stars if it was worth a detour, three stars if it was worth a special trip. That was what your Michelin stars were originally about. And so that came out of those guys finding a way to get you to wear out your tyres. So you'd buy more tyres, yeah? One last thing I'll tell you. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you as much as you want, but I'd, normally when I do a class for advertisers, it goes on for about four hours, and I'm figuring you probably don't want that. One last thing. I cannot overemphasise how important it is to simplify. How, how, how you, will, you will become useless if you get seduced by bullshit, by, by complexity. The tough bit is always to make it simple. The easy bit is to stop it complicated. Yeah? There's, a, there's a story we use of um, Sherlock Holmes and uh, Dr Watson investigating a case on Dartmoor. And... Um, they go on Dartmoor and they're camping out on Dartmoor overnight and uh, about three o'clock in the morning Watson feels a dig in the ribs and Sherlock Holmes wakes him up and Watson says, what is it Holmes? And uh, Holmes says, uh, look at the stars Watson. Look at all the stars in the sky. What can you deduce from the stars? And Watson says, well, horologically I can deduce that it's about three o'clock in the morning. Uh, theologically, I can deduce they must have been made by a superior being. Uh, astronomically, I can deduce that there's an infinite number of them. Astrologically, I can deduce that Taurus is in Mercury. Why, Holmes? What can you deduce? And he says, someone stole our tent. <laughs> if you make it complicated, you'll miss the obvious, and the power is in the obvious. Yeah? Good. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I like your thing about simplicity. Actually, a good friend of mine is one of these uh, Michelin star chefs, and what he always says is that simplicity is the end, it's not the beginning. Yeah. And as you were saying, it's one of the most difficult challenges. Well, D David Ogilvy said, uh, the essence of strategy is sacrifice. And the, the, one of the best advertising people was John Pierce. And he always says, if I throw you nine tennis balls, how many do you catch? And the answer is one. And the odds are, eight against one, you're going to catch the tennis ball that I really wanted you to catch. And after I've thrown you all nine tennis balls, it's too late to wish I'd only thrown you the one I wanted you to catch. But because you're in a meeting and everything looks important and you can't prioritise and you can't sacrifice, you throw all nine tennis balls 
and you don't know until it's too late and you've spent your money that they've caught the wrong tennis ball. So if you can't decide beforehand which is the absolute crucial tennis ball that they must catch, you're not really doing your job. That's what I mean by simplicity and sacrifice. Yep. One of the things that, um, that's very important in evolutionary psychology is adaptation. Um, and when I was reading your book, I was wondering, how do you make sure that you're always adapting to be that circle and not one of these axes? Take, for instance, the example of Benetton. They were very good in the 80s and the 90s, and uh, being that ad that was different. They were the first ones to show genitals on yep. ads, yep. United Colors of Benetton's. And they seem to have lost it to a certain extent. Yeah. Can we turn this on again? I'll just show you. <coughs> you know, um, okay, so we had that. That was actually. This is too high tech for me. <laughs> that was our commercial break. And we know the X stood out, right? So what happens is everybody talks about that and everybody notices that and everybody agrees the X stood out. <coughs> and everybody judges and works on a perfect X. And everybody now knows the X is what's powerful, so everybody does the X. And then in the next advertising break, it looks like that. Yeah? Because the fuckwits didn't understand what the X stood out, it was being different that stood out. So, Benetton does whatever Benetton does and it wins an award and everybody immediately, like heard of Lenin's, piles in and this year we all do Benetton and then it all looks like that. And this, this year the O that didn't work stands out because nobody's doing it. It isn't the point of what you do, the point is to reposition everybody else. The point is context. All there is is context. If you understand, if you've read any Kahneman, Fast and Slow Thinking, if you've read any Jonathan Haidt, you know all there is is context. Is the glass half full or half empty? Well, if everybody else has got a full glass, it's half empty. If everybody else has got an empty glass, it's half full. All we see is context and we compare ourselves to the context. So, if we run an X in a break full of X's, it's invisible. But hang on, you told me the X was new and the X was different and the No, fuck it, I told you different was different. <laughs> I told you not... Well, we see it in creative departments so much all the time. Is that this year, you know, be more dog wins. And next year you will see every commercial. Be more giraffe, be more elephant, be more fish, <laughs> be more fruit fly. Yeah? <laughs> and, and people cannot think beyond copy other people. It's very difficult to think for yourself. You know everybody tells you don't reinvent the wheel? That's absolute bollocks. Reinvent the wheel. You have to reinvent the wheel every time. If you don't, you're just copying other people. The real difficult thing is to start with a blank sheet of paper every time. Sure. Good, and I think um, for those who are interested, we do have a lot of answers in the book. Um, there will be a book sign and a book sale at the end um, of um, this public lecture. We have about uh, 20 more minutes and I'd like to open probably uh, questions for the audience. I'm sure um, you guys have questions, so, yeah. Can we, ladies at the front, maybe? <laughs>
Hi. Thank you very much. Um, I've been wondering through this whole thing how one adapts this to political advertising and reaching the people. I'm a Democrat from Wyoming. Um, <laughs> 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 I'm a liberal in Kensington. I mean, not a labor, not liberal yeah, yeah, um, in yeah, Kensington. Yeah. But, I mean, how do you, is it possible? particularly looking at what's going on. I don't want to get into a whole political thing. Okay, I mean, I, my I, government is shut down because of yes. certain people in the States. I don't, I, I don't have a view on politics, yeah. but I do have a view on how well you do whatever you do. It doesn't matter to me whether you're, you know, <coughs> conservative, Republican, Labour, Democrat. Those, those are sort of subjective things, but the objective thing is how well you do what you do. And the best I've seen is um, Clinton. Uh, uh, um, <coughs> Bill, Bill Clinton. The, when Obama was in trouble, uh, and Obama, uh, uh, before the last election, he was losing the blue-collar vote, and the one great thing about Bill Clinton is he knows how to talk blue-collar. And, and Bill Clinton came on, and he did, if you haven't seen it, you, should, you really should go back on YouTube Bill Clinton's speech. He, talk, he did what Obama can't do. He talked to the people. He talked like it was a sport, like it was given sports schools. And all the blue collar guys, all the Joe Six Packs, suddenly got it. It was like, you know, um, President Obama was going to pass this bill that would give you a quarter of a million jobs in Detroit. But the Republicans vetoed that. So that's Obama won, Republicans zero. And President, then President Obama did this healthcare thing that would give these other people access to healthcare. And the Republicans vetoed that. So that's President Obama two, Republican zero. And I thought that was that for me. I look at that and that's, he understands advertising. You put it into the language of the people you're speaking to. You don't, most politicians are on broadcast, not received. And um, I once worked on. Uh, when I, I worked for the Labour Party, when uh, Thatcher first stood for election, we went down to number 10, and then the, the, the Labour Party were in power. And we worked on the Labour Party's advertising, and we wrote, we worked, we wrote them a, a 10 minute party political broadcast, doing exactly what Clinton did, put it in ordinary people's language. And the first thing they did was give it to the think tank and change it into political language that nobody would understand. All about what we said at conference in '79 and what was said at so and so there, and, w and all of the, so all their people were pleased with what was written, and the people who were actually going to vote couldn't give a monkeys and turn the channel. And that's where advertising goes wrong. It's people saying what they want said rather than what people want to hear, and that's what Clinton understands: is you you talk into people's hearing. Not into just your speaking. So that for me, yeah. Next question. Yep. Uh, Nick Fitzherbert, uh, can I ask you, looking back over your career, which of your own ads are you most proud of? And I believe we can plug into your wisdom on a regular basis. Where do we find your blog? Well, there's there's, there's three of them. One at the agency. Uh, one on my own site. I normally put them up on Twitter. So you can always, if you go on Twitter, 
every time I do one I'll put it up and everybody objects because I put it in caps. <laughs> and some guy wrote to me and said, why do you keep advertising your blog and your book? You are polluting your stream. And I'm like, fuck it, you don't work in advertising, do you? <laughs> what do you think the purpose of being on Twitter is? The, um, but sorry, the um, thing I've done that I'm most proud of would be third world debt stuff because there was no, uh, no, um, uh, <coughs> no client, no money. Oxfam told, told us they wanted to get third world debt on the radar, discussed. Uh, currently five million children would die in a year in the third world as a result of the banks, commercial banks, and no one was even talking about it. And uh, most advertising people weren't interested because there was no money, no nothing. But I thought, this is great. This is like, we can actually, this is fantastic. I've got no client, I've got no budget. There's, this is creativity in the raw. And so a load of people would come and ask me, always at our agency, because we were, we were a good agency, hot agency, uh, if, they, if production companies wanted to get new directors made, they wanted to get them reels, they'd write to us and say, have you got any old commercials that you haven't any old scripts that you haven't made that we could have for this guy to shoot for his reel and I'd say well look I'll tell you what instead of that why don't I write a script we'll write some scripts exactly on the level that you want to shoot but here's the difference we'll generate some media for you so that you can actually enter them for awards because if, if you, they don't run you can't enter them but we'll so we then go to the cinemas and we talk to the cinemas into not the big chains like Rank, but the independent ones like the Screen or, or Curzon or those guys, and uh, say if you give us free media for the third world debt, we'll give you script approval. They'd go for that. We'd then go to the production companies. They'd go. For, we must have got 20, 30 commercials made for free. Loads and loads of media. We did the same with the poster companies. The same with the press company, with the newspapers. We must have got four or five million quid for free media, and. But the one idea that I liked best out of all of that was, just because it was creative, had, given that commercial banks was the problem, how do you get the message in the banks? We really want the banks to feel bad about being part of the third world debt. How do we get the message in the banks? Because you can't buy space in the banks. There's no radio, there's no telly, there's no posters. How do we get the message in the banks? And then we were talking about it, we thought, well, well hang on. Let's think a little broader about what media is. There is something that goes through the banks that we could print on. And what makes it really interesting is it's illegal. <laughs> it's money. You're not allowed to deface currency. And if, we, if you deface currency, it has to be taken out of circulation. And in order for it to be taken out of circulation, they have to, they're not going to do that lightly. They have to fill in forms in quintuplica, which then has to go to five departments, which each has to fill in forms in quintuplica. Whatever message we write on the money repeats itself 25 times inside the bank. So, <laughs> so we get little John Ball printing kits. I've only, normally, I've only got one on me now, but usually I've got about, about 10 or 20 of these. And we write up here... Uh, stop banks killing children, cancel the third world debt. And they'd have to write that 25 times inside the banks on the little forms. And over the 20 years I've been doing that, even me just on my own, we must have done hundreds of thousands of those inside the banks. <laughs> and you know, if someone says to me when I'm passing in a shop, they say someone's written on that. And I say, I don't know, it was only when I got it. <laughs> and, uh,
In our business, if you want to be creative, you don't have to sit around and wait for a brief. We're not bus drivers, we're not trench diggers, we're not shop, shop assistants. We've got our finger on the pulse, we're creative people. We can do things that other people can't think of. If you feel strongly about something, you can find a way of doing it. That's what we're creative, that's what we do, that's what's exciting. And to get in trouble, fuck, that's what we went to art school for, wasn't it? <laughs> I thought that was the whole point. You know, people say to me, students say to me, but are you allowed to do that? Of course you're not allowed to. What would be the point if you were allowed to do it? If you were allowed to do it, anybody could do it. The whole fun is you're not allowed to do it. Now how can you get away with it? Yeah? So that, that printing on the money there was, was the thing I, li I like a lot because it's naughty. And I'm a big fan of naughty. Thanks, Nick. Hi, Dave. Um, so going back to your thing with the Be More Dog, um, I actually refuse to believe that you don't understand it. So for everyone here who doesn't do advertising normally, how would you explain it as a proposition? And I, because I, um, I think it's particularly like a very good example of predatory thinking. Okay, let me, um, let me switch this on. Just <laughs> Here's where, I'll tell you where it's done strategically and I'll tell you where it's done tactically. The, um, life has to be very simple or it doesn't work. Basically, you're always going to be one of those two clients. You're always going to be one of those two. That's the market. You're always either going to be brand A or brand B. If you're brand A, uh, you own the market. If you're the biggest brand, if you're the biggest brand in sports shoes, then I don't need to know your name. I just because if I buy sports shoes. If I grow the market, <coughs> you automatically pick up that much share of any increase in the market, right? Yeah? yeah. You've got that? Yes. So, if you're Nike, it doesn't matter if I remember your name or not. If you're uh, Hertz in rental cars, if you're Microsoft, you own the market. If you can get more people to use computers, if you're uh, more, more of them must by Microsoft. If you're Apple, that doesn't work because you're giving away that much share of the market. If you're Apple, you have to go brand it, you have to go for market share. Yeah? So, uh, apart from you, does anybody know who did Be More Dog? Uh, this is a marketing class, people in advertising, a very media literate, media savvy, we're not hunters here, someone must know what the fuck that's for? Who knows what that's for? O2. O2. Okay. They don't own the market. I think at the moment Double E owns the market. But for sure O2 doesn't own the market. At best, they are telling me, have a mobile phone because you'll be freer. You'll be able to run around more and enjoy yourself more. You won't be tied to an old-fashioned phone. You can be more like a dog. Yeah? That's stupid brain thinking. That's a planner with his head up his ass, thinking if I like dogs and I like your brand, I'll run out like a hypnotised robot and buy that. What is that? Dogs? Oh yeah, dogs is O2. Yeah, cancel my phone contract. I want an O2 phone. Is that how it works? I don't think so. Not, in the real world. Not amongst real people. So that's one reason I think it's dumb. The other reason is it's not branded. 
I didn't even know, even if I, though I don't even know it's for a phone, I don't even know what phone, so tactically it's done. It's not even branded. You want to know some of the ads I was most proud of? Hello Tosh got a Toshiba. Ariston and on and on and on. You can break a brolly but you can't connect or a canopes. Pretty much any of my ads, you can't repeat them without saying the name of the product. Because I know that's my job. Unless I own, unless I own the market, like this, if I own the market, it's not important. I've never worked on someone that owns the market. I've always worked on brand B. There are many, many more brand Bs than there are brand A's. You're usually, you'll have about four or five of these to every one of these. You'll usually be working on what they call a challenger brand. Someone is going for market share rather than market growth. And stupid people, people who believe only in brand, look for a product insight, which is usually a market insight, which is usually about expanding the market, and they kind of very tactfully and slightly put their name on the end so you can hardly see it, and then hope that because you love their brand, David Ogilvy used to explain it as how advertising people think it works. He's two housewives on a bus, and one looks in the other one's shopping bag and says, oh, you've got Persil, I thought you bought Ariel. And she says, well, I did buy Ariel, but they changed from Bodoni Bolt to Cooper Black, and I don't find it satisfies my brand needs. <laughs> yeah? That's how stupid advertising people think the world works. And that's why 90% of advertising is wasted. Because that's not how people think. And we are not talking to ourselves. Most advertising people, like Be More Dog, is advertising done to talk to other advertising people at other advertising agencies. Planners done to talk to other planners. to talk to other planners. It's not ad people. If you're any good, you will understand all of it. The great people, if you're ever going to want to open your own agency, you're going to need really good people. You're going to need ad people. You're not going to need a planner who just does planning or a creative who just does creative. You're going to need people who understand everybody else's discipline. That's how you know if they're any good or not. I could write a better brief than that and I'm not even a planner. It's not hard work. The, when I started in this business, when I was trained in New York, there were no such thing as planners. Planners are a luxury. The actual business, you had account men and you had creatives. And the strategy was done here. That became what they call planning. I was there when Stanley Collier, BMP, started planning. And he separated that off into planning and strategy. So these guys now don't do it, the account men. And these guys never trained it over here. So now you've got creatives. <coughs> sorry. Creatives who can't do planning, who can't do strategy. Account men who can't do strategy. We leave it to non-creative guys who study nothing but case histories from university to come out and try and do a creative and then we wonder why it's not creative. Because all they've done is, and I listen to the dopes, and, and they come out and, and they sit there and they say, well, we've got this £2 million account and we want something like Virgin. We want to take our brand to be like the Virgin brand. Well, hang on. Virgin's 40 million quid a year and it's been going 20 years and it's got Richard Branson. But you've read the Virgin case history and without thinking about it, you think 2 million quid in one year will buy you that. That's the kind of dopes we're up against. People who, people who only talk to other advertising people. who They don't know they don't know. Lao Tzu, if you know anything about Taoism, Lao Tzu said 
The wise man knows he doesn't know. The fool doesn't know he doesn't know. So most of them are at they don't know they don't know. If you know you don't know, you already have power to fix it, to learn, to change it. That's, that, that, you can learn a lot about this from Lao Tzu and from Buddhism. From Buddha, particularly. Uh, and you study all those guys for, the, for how they will change your thinking, for what they can teach you about people. Because that's our media. Planners, most, there are very few great planners, but and there's very few great anybody. 90% of advertising is crap, 90% of people are crap. <laughs> Creatives, planners, accounting, employers. When you get the brilliant ones, it's so worthwhile. I mean, it's fuck, you don't need all of them. If you had, if you had Sachi and Sachi, when they were the biggest agency in the UK, they had 4% market share. And that would get you to be the biggest agency in the UK. Abbott Mead, same thing. When the NATO was the biggest agency in the UK, 4% market share. 96% of people don't want you, but 4% do. The biggest lesson you should learn is what Bill Birnbach said which is, if you stand for something, you'll find some people for you and some people against you. If you stand for nothing, you'll find nobody for you and nobody against you. One time there, the guys were really pleased and they said to me, hey, this is, look, uh, we didn't win that pitch, but it's looking great. This is the seventh time we finished second. We got down to the last two, seven times. I said, but you don't. It would have been better to finish last six times and first once. <laughs> If we became like Marmite, love it or hate it, six of you can hate us, that's great. If one of you love us, we'll have an account. This time everybody doesn't mind us, we've got nothing. And that's where most people are at. They're trying to do work that everybody doesn't mind. Nobody objects to. They're frightened to upset anybody. They're frightened to be an ex. So they're sitting there talking about which, which, which zero shall we be? Which letter O shall we be? I owe nicer than this, I owe nicer than this, I Yeah? And you're trying to alienate anybody, so nobody hates you, but the important bit is nobody loves you. And Sachi and Sachi alienated 96% of the UK, but 4% loved them, same with Adam and me. That's where the juice is. Great. I think on these notes, um, <coughs> this is it. So let's clap again and thank Dave.